Hello, everyone, and welcome to yet another episode of Mom Light. This is your host, Kanchan Koya, and today I'm so excited and so honored and so blessed, frankly, to have on our show, Kayla Mangione. Kayla is a friend I met through Instagram, and it's kind of amazing how we've become so close and she's become part of my mom tribe, my support system, my network of awesome individuals that inspire me every day. And I'm so excited to bring her story and her message to all of you. Kayla is a mother of two, living in Southern California where everybody wants to live, let's be honest. She's a licensed marriage and family psychotherapist and art therapist with a passion for the mind-body connection, which we are definitely going to talk about today. After the birth of her first daughter, she turned cooking for her family into her own form of creative therapy with the mission to support her family's thriving thriving health and create healthy food relationships for her two daughters. Kayla founded the Family Food Project an Instagram-based food diary that's absolutely beautiful and truly inspiring. You must check it out. There she shares plant-focused meal ideas, offers parenting tips for selective eaters. I love that she didn't use the word picky. (laughs) And orchestrates a community of like-minded wellness seekers. And I can really say that Kayla is a true community fosterer and nurturer. Um, and really uses Instagram in in that kind of super uplifting way. Kayla's mission is to inspire others to find the confidence and motivation to cook at home, eat well, and be well. And um, something I want to add is, you know, the first time I met Kayla on Instagram, Kayla radiates light and vitality and wellness and beauty, and we all basically want to be her when we grow up. But um, it's it's kind of one of those things where, you know, you would be tempted to think that she's always felt this way and has always been this way. And like most of us, there's a journey and there's a story and we're going to share that today. So Kayla actually had her own health struggles with Crohn's disease, and she's going to talk about that today. So it is really an inspiring story for those of us who feel like health and wellness and vitality is this elusive goal. It is not. It's achievable. It's fun. It's beautiful. And to tell us how to do it really well, we have Kayla in the house. Welcome, Kayla. Thank you so much. What a nice introduction. Well, you deserve it. I'm so honored that you're here. So like I was saying to my listeners, it's easy to look at someone like yourself and think, oh, health and wellness come so easily to her. She must be born with it. Like it looks so effortless. You know, you just look like you were born this way. (laughs) So tell us, were you born this way? Were you born as a child? Did you feel radiant, healthy, full of vitality? Tell us a little bit about your childhood. Well, I was very lucky to have a very um, educated mom. Um, She grew up in New York eating a very 1950s, 60s uh, diet, which was not healthy um, because of all the TV dinners and all that stuff her mom thought was the greatest way to feed the family. And so when she moved out to Venice Beach, California in her, I guess she was probably about 19, she found vegetarianism and started eating a much more plant-based diet. She has been um, a pescatarian now for 
50 years. Yeah, about 50 years, and almost 50 years. And um, she raised us kind of like that. So that was an important piece um, of my journey. I wasn't always like a pescatarian. I, I dabbled in all sorts of things. And my dad ate meat. But she really had a lot of knowledge about the importance of plant foods in our life. And we ate salad pretty much every single night at dinner. So that was a big part of my uh, foundation for healthy eating. Um, but to better answer your question, no, I did not always feel vibrant and healthy and full of life. Um, I was a really good eater. I have been my whole life. I love food and all types of it. But um, when I got into high school and like shortly after high school, I really didn't know. I was interested in balancing my diet. I just didn't know how. And I would say ate a lot of processed food, a lot of carbs, just trying to make work life and school life and everything work for me. I got a lot of pre-made options and um, started feeling pretty bad. So, wow. Um, that is a real gift to grow up in a family that's so aware. Kudos to your mom. Yes. I was going to ask a lot of props. <laughs> yeah. I'm going to ask if you were always plant-based and it sounds like you might not have been a hundred percent, but it was always no. kind of part of the equation and just part of the yes. situation that you found yourself yes. in. And so when you said, no, you didn't feel healthy and vibrant all the time, do you think that was because of your experiments with processed food? Because your diet sounds pretty on point. Well, I had a really good uh, variety, I think, in my diet. I just think that I maybe was susceptible to stomach issues because starting at a very young age, I did... Um, I struggled a little bit like as a kid um, in that way, just a lot of like stomach pains and in retrospect, it all kind of made sense. But at the time, I just thought that's how life was. And I think a lot of people live like that. I think that, you know, especially when you're young, you don't really know how to listen to your body in that way. And so I grew up with a lot of different things that I just thought were, was normal and even until I got really sick um, in my early 20s, I just thought, like, just push through. Everything's going to be fine. It's all normal um, until it really wasn't normal. And even at that point, it took really my mom saying, like, I'm going to sit at your front door <laughs> until you decide to go to the doctor with me. And she um, basically forced me to go see a GI specialist. Wow. And so was that kind of um, around the time when you were diagnosed with Crohn's? That was the time. So before that, I had um, had some like acid reflux, which was kind of weird. Um, my very first symptom around that time was I got a massive like, like an acne explosion kind of thing. It kind of came from nowhere. Um, knowing now how toxins exit your body, it makes perfect sense because there's only so many places toxins can exit your body and one is through the bowels. And if that's not working, which it wasn't for me, then it has to come out through somewhere else. So it came out through my skin. So I got, um, like randomly, I woke up one day and I just had this like bursts of acne all over my back, which I had never had before. And it was really like painful and didn't seem normal at all. 
So I went to the dermatologist as one would and they were like, oh, you got to change your conditioner and, you know, look at all that hair that's probably <laughs> causing it, you know, like your, your all this leave-in product is probably causing that. So I did all sorts of things and they put me on antibiotics, which I think basically took a bad situation and just made it completely worse. And from there, I, I went on this journey to figure out like what was going on. And, you know, fast forward a few months later, there was acid reflux issues. I went to the emergency room thinking that I was choking and couldn't breathe because I woke up one night and my um, stomach acid had like singed my esophagus. And I'd never had that in my life. So I didn't know what was going on. And it was really scary. Um, but I just thought like, I'm so young. I'm, I eat well. I'm like, I'm not really at risk in any way, you know what I mean? So I did, I really just felt like, ah, oh, it's all going to blow over and it's going to be fine. Right. But it didn't. Um, no. Right. So, so yeah, tell us what happened um, as, so, that, as your kind of probing continued. Yeah. So my mom forced me to see a GI specialist after I had been experiencing a lot of stomach pain. Um, I was losing weight really rapidly. And um, what was interesting is at the time I was in the fashion industry, I was managing and buying for a popular boutique in town. And, you know, in fashion, being small and slim is good. It's a good thing. Um, so people would come in and, and meet me and talk to me or I'd be trying on all the sample sizes and people would be like, what are you doing? You look so good. Um, what are, are you dieting or what? And I was thinking the whole time in my head, like, no, like I'm really sick. And it was just a weird thing to have to, you know, I would think it, I wouldn't share it with everyone because it wasn't always appropriate. And I also didn't know what was going on at the time. So I didn't know how to answer, but it was a really interesting situation because I had never really luckily struggled with any sort of eating disorders or disordered eating, I don't think. Um, so at that point, I felt like I looked kind of good, but then I felt terrible on the inside. So it was kind of a, a weird thing. Um, Weird but, and so important to bring up, right? Because yeah, the, the the conversation is so focused very often on how you look and how size is somehow a measure of health. And totally, I mean, it, it really <laughs> it, it's not always the case, you know, and very often not. Um, yeah, such an important reminder. Wow. So that was a really interesting time then. So, but you 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 heeded your mom's advice and you went to a GI specialist. And I just want to talk about that for a second, because I feel like so many people get used to feeling like not very good. Yes. <laughs> um, Mark Hyman actually has an acronym that he calls <coughs> FLC, feel like, you know, mm -hmm. and people just think that's normal in life to feel kind of suboptimal. But somehow, I guess your mom had a sense that no, there's a better way. There's a more vibrant way. And she wanted to you know, help you find that as, as your mother, but you could have very yeah. simply stayed in that mindset of, Oh, it's just, you know, it's just normal. It's how I feel and not actually taken further action. So, yes, I mean, aside from your mother, did you feel like there was something that just kind of propelled you to say, no, there's, you know, it's not okay to feel suboptimally most of your life. Um, 
I am very stubborn <laughs> and um, have been described as very stoic. And, you know, I, I was in this, you know, 19, 20 year old, I had moved out when I was 18, no backup plan, was working full time, going to college part time, doing my own thing, traveling. I had a, a really good job at the time that was kind of like, sort of sought after and I was doing fashion and it was exciting and I was not going to slow down because I had a stomach ache. Like I wasn't, I was just going to push forward and I didn't really see at that point any of the connections between my stress level and my eating habits and my kind of fast paced life um, to the stomach issues that I was having. I didn't see that connection at all. So Hopefully, I would have gotten there on my own, but that FLC, that was me. Like, I just was like, this is life, like, push through. Um, and I was really busy. It was just a busy time in my life. So, hopefully, I would have gotten there. Yeah. <laughs> amazing. Good thing, well, good, good thing, thing mom was. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. So, then you went further, you went to a GI specialist, and then what happened? So, I went to the GI specialist and had. Uh, lots of tests done and they told me you know it could be this it could be that and um, I do remember at one point I was very weak and they wanted me to be in a wheelchair to to go into the to the appointments um, like I wasn't in a wheelchair when I was at home but like they were wheeling me around they didn't trust me to walk through the halls which that was a like a big thing because I, I was young, you know, I was like 20, 21, you know, and I was like partying and going out and working all day and having fun. And then all of a sudden I was looked at, like, I just felt like, oh, I'm this like sick person. It was a very weird feeling. So I went through all the tests and um, they came back and said, you do have Crohn's disease which for those that don't know, it's an autoimmune disease, it's an inflammatory bowel disease, and um, it's basically when your intestine or a part of your intestine, for me specifically, the part where the small intestine meets the large intestine, which is called your ileum, um, the disease kind of likes to hang out around there and basically just gets inflamed over and over and over until you have so much scar tissue that in my case built up almost a complete blockage in my intestine. So I was eating, but things weren't really coming out. And for some people they have like the opposite issue, but it's just because it's so inflamed in there that um, everything you eat basically makes it inflamed, which, you know, is why you can lose so much weight and it, it becomes really challenging because you see food, even healthy foods, especially healthy foods actually, because raw fruits and vegetables or fibrous things can be especially irritating. So you start to see food a little bit like pain, which is a weird thing. So I got diagnosed. Um, I didn't know anything about it. And I... The person, the doctor who diagnosed me was just like some random guy. My mom was like, you're going tomorrow. I think I went on a holiday weekend. Like she was just like, you have to go. And I obliged just to um, keep her quiet. And then when it, when we figured out it was pretty bad, I switched and went to a great, um, 
IBD specialist at Cedars here in LA. And um, I just did all the stuff, all the treatments and met with nutritionists and they put me on loads of medication. I was on steroids. My face just like blew up. Um, I was this like tiny little body with this big round face. And, you know, I was like 21 trying to be like everybody else. And um, yeah, that was, it was hard, but I just, believe it or not, I just kept pushing through. Like I didn't really even tell a lot of people I was sick. Um, so I did that for a while until they found a very large, um, infection about the size of a tangerine on the side of my intestine. And I had to be on an IV drip at home. So I like had the little like IV stand at home with my IV drip bag. And meanwhile, I'm living like in a really cute apartment by the beach with my best friend and like two cute guys downstairs. And like, I have my IV bag and all my fancy clothes and like the life that I was living was just like on pause and it was this weirdest thing. So after they um, got the infection down, they decided that surgery was inevitable. Like I had almost a complete blockage in my intestine. It wasn't getting better. All the steroids weren't working to, you know, enough. So they wanted to operate. And they did. Yes. So I had what's called an ileocecal resection. So basically you have lots of intestine, many feet, and they basically chop it off where there's diseased part and staple it back together. So um, for me, that was the ileum, which now I've, I know is a very important place where you absorb a lot of nutrients and minerals and vitamins, um, which I'll talk about later, but that has influenced my eating choices. Um, and my cecum, which is next to it, and then a few inches on either side, and then they basically stapled it back together. So I had um, that surgery, it was, I think, less than a year after I was diagnosed. Wow. And so, okay. And you were just pushing through. You knew that you just had to go through these motions to find, to, to recover and, you know, feel kind of normal I mean, again. I didn't feel like I had a choice. Right. I was really young and not, I not educated about this at all. It all happened so fast. Um, and you know, when a doctor says like, you have to do this, like you could die if you don't do it. I was like, okay, I guess I'm doing this. Right. Um, I don't know how I feel about it now, but it is what it is. And it's right. where I am. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's so hard to see when you're going through a challenge like that. But obviously, for the rest of us who see you now, I mean, it's so apparent that it was, you know, uh, a gift in a rotten package, maybe. But yes. it's definitely a gift. Well said. Um, <laughs> so, but you just, so, I mean, I know some people with Crohn's and, you know, they're on medication, they're on chronic medication, and they're very much on the pharmaceutical train. But somehow yeah. you decided to get on a different train. Yes. Um, the food as medicine train, as you call it. Yes. So what made you, what inspired you to make that switch, which is really kind of defying convention, at least I'm sure like 10 some years ago, um, and say, no, I'm going to find a more natural way to heal from this. Well, I do like rules, but <laughs> I have a, there's a bit of a rebel inside of me. And when someone tells me, you know, at a really young age, you're going to have to be on medication for the rest of your life prophylactically. 
didn't make any sense to me. I thought, what is like, that's living in fear, basically. Um, and I'm not saying medication is bad. It's very life-saving for people. And for people that really need it, I think it's the right choice. But I had this surgery and I was feeling okay. And I started to do some research about what I could do naturally. I got to give more credit to my mom here because my mom was like <laughs> up all night researching. We need to bring your mom on the show. <laughs> it is mom light and well, she's a mom and she you know, helps <laughs> find the light. So yeah. She's a, she's a very devoted mom. Um, and I will say just anecdotally, um, she was diagnosed with Crohn's disease a couple years after me. So um, there are two main onsets. One is um, in your early 20s or late teens, um, which is interesting. And then the other onset could be around menopause. And so she was diagnosed after me, which is really interesting and had a completely different set of symptoms um, as well. But I digress. Um, I just decided, you know, I don't feel comfortable taking medication for the rest of my life. And my doctor was not happy about that. Um, she basically said, you are on like the second highest level of medication. And if you go off of it and it doesn't go well, you'll have to go back on the highest form of medication, which is injecting injectables. So she was like, you're on pills now. And if you get off of it and don't do well, now you're going to have to use injectables for the rest of your life. Like, are you sure you want to make this choice? And I just thought, I only, like, this is my life. Like, I got to try. So that's what I did. I learned a lot about diet. I learned a lot about stress management. And I just decided to make a big lifestyle change. Wow. That's amazing, especially in your early 20s when, like you said, you have, you know, just a few things on your mind, really, but you were forced to. Um, and so how long did it take you to start to feel well again with this kind of more natural approach? Um, I will say it's all kind of a blur, really. Um, but when I experimented with cutting out gluten, I noticed a huge change. So that was a very remarkable for me. Um, I cut out gluten and all of a sudden I felt like I wasn't going to explode. Like every day at the end of the day, I would feel like so much pressure. Like I would immediately have to like rip my pants off, take my bra off. Like everything was just like swollen. And when I stopped eating gluten, all of a sudden I didn't feel like that anymore. And I, it was like a big light bulb. Like that was the t the moment, really, for me that I realized, wow, food really can affect how you feel like in a major, major way. So having that reaction, I just realized, okay, that's my body talking to me and telling me that gluten is not my friend. Like, and I had a um, a test to see if I was in fact allergic, and it came back negative. Um, but I trusted my body and I believed that it was giving me the right information. And as much as I love like bread and all things carbs, really gluten is just not invited back into my life, at least not for now. <laughs> yeah. Wow. I mean, you know, I think gluten is so 
trendy to talk about. And totally, um, it's such a complicated issue. And I think, it, but it, you know, it's such an important ingredient to look at when you are suffering any kind of digestive distress. Um, we could have a whole show on gluten, but I guess yes. the moral of the story, really the takeaway is sometimes the tests are less informative than the messages your body is giving you and 100%. encouraging people, moms, anyone really to pause and listen. The body is so wise. Um, I don't have, you know, any kind of debilitating gut issues, but I feel so much more vibrant off gluten. Um, there's so many reasons for that. And again, like I said, it's another show, but yeah, I love that you were able to do that elimination and figure it out and feel so much better. And so you've kind of stuck with a gluten-free life since then. Yes. I have not gone back. I did go to Italy at some point years ago and decided it was worth it to me to try um, some Italian pizzas and pastas. And I actually didn't feel that bad, but I knew that it was probably doing some minor damage inside of my gut that um, I might pay for later. It's all interesting because the inflammation, you can't always feel it when it's happening. So I guess, um, the way I see it now is if I were to have gluten, I could be causing myself a little more inflammation. And over time, that could be a big problem. So I stay away from it. I'm comfortable with that. It has um, caused me to have to learn how to cook in so many ways because if you think about it, back like 13 years ago, gluten-free living was not <laughs> as trendy as it is now. I mean... People did not understand. I had to do a lot of explaining and, you know, talking to restaurants about it. And um, I really felt like the girl that was like the pain in the ass to go out to eat with. And um, the few people that knew that were celiac or knew about gluten intolerance, like, always wanted to talk about it with me because it was just like this small group of us. And now it's so popular and it's actually really beneficial for me because I don't really have to explain myself anymore. Um, but back then it was hard because I didn't want to feel like I was making everything difficult. And I did have the Crohn's disease card, you know, but I didn't feel like it was necessary to have to explain myself to everyone. Um, Basically, this was a big, a big turning point for me. Someone once said to me, like, someone made me a big platter of cookies, like as a thank you, and didn't know I couldn't eat them. And I felt awful, like awful. It was so nice. They, they especially made them for me. And I didn't want to tell her that I couldn't eat them. Um, and so I remember thinking, like, should I eat one, you know, in front of her? because I feel bad and um, culturally like you know when someone gives you a gift like that especially homemade gift like I've just always been brought up to like eat it in front of them and let them know how appreciative I am um, and someone said to me like who do you care more about yourself and how you feel or how the other person might feel um, if you don't eat their things and I it like dawned on me okay, like if someone really cares about me, they're not going to want to make me sick. Like they're not going to, and if they don't really care about me, then I don't really want them in my life anyway, you know? So yeah. that was, 
that was a big moment for me because I realized, okay, like if I'm a pain in the ass to go out to eat with, then it is what it is. No one has to go out to eat with me. So I wouldn't say that I like lost any friends over it or anything, but mentally I made that switch and that was big for me. Yeah. And it's so much, so very often about just communicating the intention, right. And saying, I'm so appreciative, but I'm also in a position where I really have to take care of myself. And of course, a good friend or someone who's yeah, concerned about you is going to understand. Um, yes. And I think, yeah, I mean, anyway, that's, that's a, that's a really amazing realization and switch. Um, you presumably cut out other things other than gluten. I think the listeners, for the listeners, if you could summarize, why is gluten so problematic for so many people with gut issues? Well, gluten is highly inflammatory. Um, there are other inflammatory foods as well. And just for anyone listening that is suffering with an inflammatory disease, I would highly look into, I always suggest looking at gluten, looking at dairy, looking at refined sugar, um, looking at corn, soy, um, grains in general, all of these things can be really inflammatory for people, even eggs. Um, so all of like those kinds of foods, nightshades are another one. Um, those are the things that I would cut out first um, and, you know, call it an elimination diet or whatever. There's a lot of different diets, um, specific carbohydrate diet. AIP, all of those diets kind of have the same sort of thing where they cut out these inflammatory foods and then basically reintroduce them to see how your body feels. And it's hard. It's going to be hard for a lot of people to really tap into knowing how their body feels because sometimes a reaction comes days later. Sometimes it's immediate. Um, some people get you know, indigestion. Other people get constipation. And some people might experience... Um, emotional reactions, you know, through or mood reactions. Um, it's very difficult. And the hardest part of it all is that we're constantly changing. So the things that maybe used to be great for us sometimes now bother us. And it just depends on hormones and age and lifestyle and where you're at. So it is tricky. But I don't see it as like a daunting thing. I see it as a the opportunity to get to know yourself in a deeper level. So I cut out other foods. Um, nothing bothered me quite as the way gluten did, but now I'm so good at knowing what bothers me. I can like really, I really cut things out all the time. Like, hmm, I don't feel great. What could that be? I'm eating more of this or that. And now it, a lot of it is packaged things because um, I'm just so used to eating like fresh foods that when I introduce new packaged foods, sometimes I'm like, well, that didn't work well. Yeah, I love that. Um, you get better with practice. Totally. Signals. And I think what's been so amazing watching you, I mean, I didn't know you in the, during the Crohn's phase, but watching you now is that your life feels so filled with abundance when it comes to food. Yeah. It never feels like, oh, she's on a gluten-free diet. Oh, oh, like, so bad, <laughs> you know? Yes. So you became a mother. Um, and then you kind of continued to cook in this abundant, but predominantly gluten-free, dairy-free way. So yes. maybe tell us a little bit about that transition from being this very aware, 
20 something to now a mom and thinking about feeding your kids, one of the most primal instincts, something that gives every mother so much joy <laughs> to just see their kid eating, whatever. Um, so how did you translate all your learnings then to motherhood and rearing children and you know all that amazing stuff? I love that question. Um, I do want to go back and say one more thing about gluten, though, that I failed to mention that I do think is important. Um, and the more I re research and learn about it, the more I realize like, just how um, pesticide-laden wheat is as a crop and how a lot of those pesticides do really affect people. And so I think I, just one more thing about uh, gluten is that it often comes from wheat. Wheat is harvested Typically, conventional wheat is harvested by having glyphosate um, sprayed on it until it's dried up because it makes it dry faster. And I think that heavy dose of pesticides constantly, because we in America we eat so much wheat. I mean, you know, in our breakfast cereals and on our sandwich bread for lunch and then at dinner in our pasta and things like that. Um, so just being inundated with that much pesticides, I think that is a reason why it bothers a lot of people too, because those pesticides can break down those junctions in your intestine and make it more permeable. Um, so sorry, that was a little tangent, but I, I want people to become more educated about this because it's very serious. Yeah, no, it's not a tangent. It's actually really important. And so <laughs> say that a way for people to enjoy gluten more responsibly would maybe to buy to be to use kind of organic like usda organic certified you know bread or gluten products that are organic well i think another huge uh, point is to diversify your grains and you'll see that on my instagram um, page a lot is we use a lot of buckwheat we use a lot of millet we use a lot of different grains because i think sometimes um having too much of one thing uh, creates the opportunity for more problems. Um, not only that, but um, transitioning over to what you were saying before about becoming a mother, um, keeping a lot of variety was a huge goal of mine for my kids. I think it's one of the big reasons why my children are um, excited about eating. We have so much variety and they... I kind of keep them on their toes in that way about what's going to be served because it's not the same thing every night and they do know about different grains and they do know about alternatives. And um, so having children really inspired me to, I looked at them as like a tabula rasa, you know, like I had these blank slates, these perfect, perfectly functioning bodies. And I wasn't going to put, um, food that I thought could harm them into their bodies. So not that, you know, I don't want to villainize any certain food because there's a place for all of it, but I just felt like I'm eating a nutrient-dense diet and I could do even better for my kids. And it was actually kind of easy for me. I just felt like this is what I have to do. Yeah, and your kids um, eat remarkably well it's always really inspiring and also kayla is always sharing incredible tips on the family food projects instagram page about how to get kids to just be excited about the variety to not be put off by their rejection which is normal and to not get into a constant food battle scenario so i think um 
Yeah, we would love to hear some of your tips there. How do you get your kids to eat watermelon radish and um, <laughs> microgreens and celery rainbows? Um, I love it. And I've totally stolen some of those ideas, but just overall. And yeah, also I feel like somehow, and you probably know this, um, your art therapy and your therapy background must play a role in this kind of cultivation of healthy eating relationships um, with your kids. So we'd love some tips for our oh. little eating. Thank you. <laughs> well, definitely the um, therapy background. I'll give you a little bit more background to that. Um, while I was in graduate school studying to be a therapist, I actually worked with a family as a nanny. And um, I watched three little boys and one of them was an extremely selective eater. Um, I don't like to use the word picky or fussy because I just don't think it's helpful at all, uh, especially if the child hears you calling them picky. Um, children, their job in the world is to try to gain a little bit of power where they can. So for many kids, that's one place where they can get some power. And um, I like picky people. I like people with an opinion. So I don't see it as a negative thing. I see it as a strong character trait um, that makes it very frustrating to feed them as their parent. But I think a lot of children that are opinionated grow up to be amazing adults. So I always like to remind parents of that. And I think sometimes changing your perspective about it um, is helpful because I look at feeding my kids as um, the opportunity to teach them, just like everything else. You know, our job as parents is to teach them. So I'm constantly modeling for them what a healthy food relationship looks like, what a healthy diet looks like, in my opinion. Um, eating in front of them, bringing them into my world, into the kitchen, into the farmer's market, into the supermarket, um, letting them be involved. I think that's been one of the biggest game changers for us. I mean, maybe not even game changer because it's always been how I've done it, but my kids feel included. Therefore they feel like they have power. And um, when they sit down at the table, there's no power struggle. There is sometimes, but <laughs> generally not. They don't feel like they have to gain the power um, with deciding what they're going to eat and what they're not going to eat because they already got the power to choose something new at the grocery store and they got the power to wash it when we got home and cut it up however they wanted and you know decide how things are going to look or you know like they don't get to choose that for every meal but quite often I involve them somehow. And so what happens what would you say to moms or parents who have done all that and then they sit mm -hmm. down and the kid refuses to eat dinner and doesn't like anything on the plate what how do you handle that if it ever comes up well there's so many factors at play and this is the hard part because there's not a one-size-fits-all um, protocol that you would use for that it really just depends on the family dynamic and the child their personality and i would just like to remind parents that you know their job in the world is to help their children grow and navigate the world and using um, sitting with them and using kind language and feeling like you're on their team and not on a different team is really an important way, I think, to approach this situation because I think a lot of times parents feel like, 
I'm on team, like sneak all those veggies in and the kids are on team, like we hate veggies, but it doesn't have to be like that. Um, just because you see that in movies and in books. And I'll tell you, I have quite a few books that I've opened and been like, wow, this is a message to hate green vegetables right here. And um, these kids are hearing it at such a young age and it's like, but not all kids feel like that. So needless to say, those books get tossed out over here. But um, you can create the, the energy that is around your dinner table, you know? So if your child refuses to eat what's on their plate, um, they're probably not going to starve themselves. So, you know, I would serve things that you know they like with things that they might not like. So, you know, they're getting some food in. I always suggest um, serving new foods or riskier foods at like lunchtime. That way, you know, it's flanked by breakfast, which they hopefully ate and dinner, which they'll hopefully eat. But then they won't go to bed hungry because I know that's like a fear of a lot of parents. Um, they don't want to send their children to bed hungry. So trying a new food at dinner time is not always the best. Um, and then for there's a lot of really extreme cases where kids can actually be super tasters, where they taste things more strongly, or maybe they have some other sensory issues going on. Um, those kinds of situations are going to take different techniques, but Something that I like to remind parents is that they're in charge of what is served and when it's served, and the child is in charge of how much they're going to eat. So I definitely am not um, for like dessert rewards. I'm definitely not for like you have to finish everything on your plate. Um, I don't think that allows the child to find their own hunger and fullness cues, which is really important. And I think it's, that's something that a lot of us, myself included, have really lost sight of. Um, and then I also really think that um, if a child isn't going to eat something and they just refuse, just to have it on their plate is exposure enough. And I actually have heard of children that just won't even keep it on their plate. So in that kind of situation, you can move, take it a step further and give them like a thinking about it plate you know uh, just a plate on the side of their plate where they can put it there and just think about it but it's there they see it they know about it they can smell it they can lick it they can touch it they can play with it if they want and all of that adds up because if they've never seen something before they have no idea it might be too scary for some kids I love the thinking about it plate I'm going to totally use that. My toddler does not want certain things on her plate. Yes. I really think that's so helpful, um, Kayla. It really is a journey. And I've been thinking about it that way more. And just a message to parents, don't freak out. If they don't eat, they are not going to starve. I mean, it is yes. really heartbreaking to think that you're sending your kid to bed hungry. But if you use some of those hacks, try to add the new foods at lunch, give them something they know they're going to eat at dinner. You're still introducing the new foods. You're making sure they're fed and you're not paranoid and freaking out that they're a little hungry. A little hungry is not a bad thing. Um, no. You know, it's something we've lost as a society, the ability to feel genuinely hungry. So I love all I those tips. I completely agree. Are your kids gluten-free? They are for the most part, um, but it's not because they have allergies or have had reactions to it. Um, I just cook everything at home and everything I cook is gluten-free. And when we're out, if they want to try something, I'm open-minded, but I also pay very close attention to how they react after they have certain foods. 
So and they ever, yeah, no, sorry. Go ahead. No, it's okay. Um, they both reacted negatively to dairy. Um, I still let them have a little bit here and there just to see, and also to hopefully not create more of an allergy. And um, same with refined sugar. It's not really in the house very much, but when we're out, I'll let them have a little bit. And I do notice a huge, huge change um, for them when they have it. Yeah, so I'm very similar to you in that, I mean, we're not gluten-free, but, you know, I just try to vary grains and try to be conscious when I'm at home. And then sometimes I will get criticized um, about things like, oh, but, you know, they're kids, like they need to experience the world, which means junk food sometimes, processed food, sugar, bread. Like, have you ever faced that kind of <laughs> yes. um, opinion? And how do you, how do you, how do you make sense <laughs> with that? Oh, I face it all the time through um, Instagram, in my personal life. I mean, a lot of people have a lot of opinions. And I just think, like, you have to do what makes sense for you and not really worry about how everyone else feels. Because at the end of the day, you get one shot to raise your children. And what a blessing it is to do so. So I know for us, like, I'm raising two girls. I'm very, very aware of how easy it is to slip into obsessive thoughts about food, to slip into, um, you know, body conscious thoughts. I mean, it is right there in the forefront of my mind. So when I introduce them to different foods, I am never villainizing any food. I'm never shaming any food. Everything is great. And there's a time and place for all of it. And um, the most important important thing that I hope to teach my children is to really listen to those little whispers from their body, letting them know what works and what doesn't. And um, it's been so amazing to see that um, kind of come through. My two-year-old is a little young, but my five-year-old is getting it. And she'll let me know too. Um, the other day she told me, uh, mom, I need some water. And um, and she drank it. She's like, oh, I feel so much better. Listen to your body. She said this to me. And I was like, oh my gosh, it's like coming through. You know, she's like, I'm really thirsty. I need water, you know. Um, and even though that's really just um, some people might not have even noticed, it really stood out to me. Like, okay, she's getting it. She's listening to what she needs. And I know they're going to eat junk food. Like right, it's gonna be and it's okay. Right, yeah, it's right. okay as long as they know how to get back to um, a place where they're not ignoring how they feel, and where they have the foundation and the tools to get back to optimal health. Because we have no idea what the future holds, you know. Yeah, totally. I love that. Um, so do you feel um, healed from Crohn's now? Do you feel like you have control over your body, your health? Do you feel vibrant? Um, two kids later. <laughs> <laughs> um, that is such a hard question to answer because I don't know what, like, am I in remission? Technically, yeah, I have been since, I mean, for like 13 years or so. Um, it's very strange. I don't think about it on a day-to-day -day basis. I don't think of Crohn's disease as, um, you know, my identity at all, really. Um, I, it's an important part of my journey. It's a piece of who I am. Um, it is 
back there somewhere helping me make my decisions about food and and um, stress management for sure but I don't think about it as this like thing I've overcome and you know healed from really um, I think healing is on a continuum really I don't know that it ever stops um, you can either know about your illnesses and your disease or maybe you don't have a clue what's going on in your body but you you know you could feel better so um, like I said before it's always changing since having kids I feel quite exhausted um, so that's something I'm constantly working on trying to find trying to make sure that I'm getting what I need in order to feel my best and um, as far as stomach things I feel really good um, but I know there's always room for growth yeah I love that um, it's part of your journey but it's not your identity and no I really feel like you um, radiate the sense of abundance even though it may have been inspired by a phase where there was a sense of lack of health you know so yeah it's a really inspiring story and for any of you listening who have any kind of challenge or health challenge or gut issue just know that there's a way to vitality it can take a while it can take a lot of patience and listening to your body and um, really seeing it as a journey and a continuum. So, I mean, really, if you haven't checked out Kayla and seen her page <laughs> and met her, you will be like, I can, if she can be in this state, um, anyone can overcome a health challenge. So it really is an inspiring story and we really appreciate you sharing it so candidly. Um, so let's talk about exhaustion and motherhood. Any tips? <laughs> Uh, well, let's normalize it because it's, it's real. I mean, the hormone, the lack of sleep, the huge shift in identity that happens, um, it's, it's tough. And I think a lot of women are expected just to like bounce back or like figure it out, but talk about another journey. I mean, it, I think that starting my Instagram page and, and finding this piece of myself that I didn't really know existed and sharing recipes and developing recipes um, has been really helpful for me because it has become part of my new mom identity. I never thought about doing this before um, having children at all. Um, in fact, I worked in a residential youth shelter with homeless and runaway teens um, before I had my kids and I worked with lots of kids and it was residential. So they were cooking there and I was often helping them. Um, my, my role as the um, therapist there was a little bit blurred because it just is in residential settings. Um, so, you know, I just, I think like it's all a journey and it all makes sense in retrospect, but as we're in it, like, the exhaustion piece is just, it is what it is. And obviously my best self-care is all the simple stuff you've heard your whole life, which is eating a well-balanced diet, getting fresh air, getting sunshine, moving your body, um, some sort of prayer or meditation or, or mind calming um, ritual, which I could definitely get better at. And then um, knowing that it's okay, you know, and I think I work, I'm still working on that, knowing that it's okay not to do 
everything all at once, like single purpose tasks, which I mean, I prided myself, I still do, on multitasking. Um, I think it's one of the things I love about Instagram so much is that I feel like I'm putting this information out. I'm trying to, you know, I'm helping people. It's like I'm pushing a hundred buttons at one time. Literally. Um, <laughs> yeah. You know, um, and I love that piece of it, but then also recognizing that like, okay, multitasking might feel rewarding, but at the end of the day, doing one thing at a time well is also very rewarding and there's a place for that and um, we should make some space for that in our lives. Yeah, normalizing the exhaustion, it is what it is. It's part of the season we're in and it's okay. Yes, yeah, it Do is. Best you can. Um, let's talk about, let's talk about working out. Cause I know you started to dabble in that again and you've shared something kind of hilariously shocking with me. So yeah. What has been your uh, relationship with exercise through your life? And you know, now you're a mom and to find mom light, like we got to move our bodies, I guess. Right. Okay. So eating well has comes pretty naturally to me. So I'm just going to say that, put that out there because I know for a lot of people it doesn't. Um, but like I said, from a very young age, I love salad. I just, I love it. Um, I don't have to choke down a green juice. I look forward to it. You know, um, that part is easy for me. The exercise piece has been what's been a challenge for me probably my whole life. I was very active as a child, but, um, two things that I've found as I've gotten older that have affected my ability or my motivation to work out. One is that um, I'm not that competitive. So I don't really care <laughs> what other people think about how fast I can run or how strong I am. Um, I played team sports. I played soccer in high school and everything. But to be honest, I didn't really care that much about winning. Um, I can be a little bit more competitive with myself, but I'm not naturally just not that competitive. So that really affects my motivation to work out because I think a lot of people are very heavily motivated by that competition factor. I will also say, yeah, yeah, I think a lot of people are also motivated back to the point you had made in the beginning um, about size. You know, there's yes. some people are naturally heavier set and it's like in a society where, oh, you look great. You're sick inside. Who cares? You look great. You're skinny. Um, you know, luckily the, the conversation is shifting and we're becoming more aware about, you know, some of the damaging, some of the damage that that kind of thinking can do. But do you feel like that's also, so you seem like a naturally slim person. Do you think that's also maybe a reason why you haven't felt that motivation to work out to sort of stay a certain size? Yes, definitely. I have my body, my body type doesn't really lose weight or gain weight very easily. I just stay the same pretty much my whole life besides that Crohn's disease. Um, time when I lost some weight, um, it's really interesting. I just, I've, I've noticed that um, as I've gotten older too, just friends that can easily put on weight quickly and then take it off quickly. I've never been able to do that. So I just kind of stay around the same, I guess. Um, 
I, I guess at some point my motivation for working out was to look a certain way. It's certainly not that anymore. Um, right. You've had to find like a deeper intention, really a deeper why. Much deeper intention. It's totally about mental clarity and mental health now for me, um, as well as longevity and just being able to be a strong person, mom, wife, you know, um, friend, partner, you know? Right. I mean, you have your hands full, you have the two little ones, you're cooking yes. at home. So how do you find time? <laughs> what have you been doing lately to make time for movement? And can you share some advice for moms who want to move, who have connected with that deep intention, but just yes. are having a really hard time getting it done? One, one thing I wanted to say too, is that there's this, um, everyone talks about all these endorphins you get after you work out and how you feel just euphoric and it's so great. And I have to say, I've never even heard anybody talk about this before. I don't really get that. So even when I have a really hard workout, I'm proud of myself for doing it. I feel almost always feel better um, afterward than I did before, but I don't get that high that everyone talks about. Um, I maybe have before, but I, it's not, a normal feeling for me and everyone talks about working out to get that feeling and since I don't really get it and that's just my brain chemistry how my body works um, it's not a huge motivating factor for me so that's another another thing I wanted to mention because um, finding the motivation to work out when you like don't get the high afterward you don't really care necessarily how your body looks not that I don't care how my body looks but right. I'm not you don't need aiming to, like, to be uh, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. not trying to keep my weight down for any medical reasons or any other reasons um, and then yeah I'm not really competitive all of that has created the perfect storm for me to be like I need a workout or I don't want to work out or I'm not prioritizing it but I know how important it is for my mental health um, and, and certainly after now <laughs> yes. Not that it's not important for physical health too, because it definitely is. Um, so I'm doing it now because I have had a really hard time keeping up a consistent practice at home, um, which I thought that I would be able to do after having kids. Um, I just get very frustrated trying to work out at home with my kids climbing on me and, you know, not enough space. And so finally I just decided I need to make a change. And the beautiful thing about change is when you make one change, it sets off the change domino effect. So um, I made one change and I started going to the gym, this gym that I would have never joined. Um, I'm like a yoga bar, like chill kind of exerciser. Um, but I joined this kind of like intense CrossFit style gym because they have great childcare. And, um, that's a great tip. Find a gym yes. that has childcare. Okay. Love and that. just show up. I guess that's really it. I mean, there's no, no secret. You just got to show up. And once you're there, um, the thing that I do is I give myself permission to do whatever I need to do when I'm there. I just have to go. So if I need to walk on the treadmill and leave, fine. But, um, the thing that works best for me is taking classes. So I need someone to, I don't need someone to, I do my best work when someone else is telling me, okay, you know, push up now, stand up, do this, do that. It just works a lot better for me. I'm not super self-motivated when it comes to um, fitness. So I recently took 
a MMA conditioning class, um, <laughs> boxing, and I realized it's a lot like dancing. And I love dancing, but there's no dance classes around me that have childcare. So I couldn't do any dance classes. And so that's now you're I doing MMA instead. So now I'm doing MMA <laughs> and I'm just like beating the heck out of a, a bag. And it's so like, it's so freeing. Um, I'm not like a violent person or anything like that, but in terms of like stress relief, it's amazing. And um, you can also really go at your own pace. So obviously your technique can improve the more you do it and um, you get stronger. But like if you're a beginner, like I would say I am at this point, um, you can modify your movements. I, I just, I really, really like it. I think it's great, a great stress relieving exercise. And like dancing. So if you like dancing, I would try it. Wow. Well, I think the tip then is show up, don't overthink it, find a gym with childcare, make it work and just show up, take action. The yes. guest on my last show said the same thing. Taking action is hugely more effective than any yeah. kind of like motivational anything. So show up guys. You might be surprised. You might fall in love with M MMA. <laughs> well, and if you're an overthinker like I am, you got to do the action first. So it's right action into right thinking because if you're thinking about it too much, it's not going to happen. So you have to do and then think afterward. And also, don't paint yourself in a, in a corner. Like you, I would have never thought I liked MMA, but I tried because like I said before, you make one change and it inspires other changes. And now I'm like, oh, like what if I, you know, what can I do in this? This is like a new practice for me. It's just a new, um, it's just a new piece of my mom identity, I guess. <laughs> Love it. Um, we could literally talk all day. Um, yes. You've given us so much to be inspired by, so many tips, so much to think about. I can't let you go without asking one question that might feel like it's coming out of left field, but you are um, a therapist, a marriage counselor, um, couples <laughs> therapist. You know, and when I think of finding lightness in mom life, um, hence mom light, um, we've talked about food, we've talked about movement, we've talked about, you know, children. Um, you, I mean, what would be your tips for moms and uh, those of us kind of just feeling like we're juggling it all and um, spinning so many plates at once? How do you recommend staying connected in your marriage? Um, you know, do you have any tips there? I mean, yeah, many people are connected and hopefully, you know, working on it, but it's just something we don't talk about that often, but it's so important. Yeah. Um, yeah. Do you feel like you work on that consciously? Does it come naturally to you? Any tips that you'd like to share? That's a really great question because I think that we, most people struggle with this, especially because once you have children and then you're trying to find that work um, mom balance, if you can achieve any sort of balance there, oftentimes the relationship is not in that equation at all. So um, I just, again, I would just want to normalize that because no, but no relationship is perfect. And I am still trying to figure that out in my own marriage. Um, the best possible thing you can do, and it's so cliche, but just to communicate and make sure that you're constantly sharing, you know, checking in with each other about needs. Um, I also want to normalize going to couples counseling or marriage counseling. It is not for the mentally ill. Um, it's 
definitely something that is going to improve your life. Um, making time for that is important. And um, if you have a really busy, chaotic life with lots of things going, it might be one quiet place where you can spend that time with each other um, to sort out how you want to parent the kids or, you know, future life goals and things like that. Um, I also think having a hobby that you can do together that you both really enjoy is important. So I'm still working on that with my husband um, because as you know, like when you have less time, all of those things that you used to like to do um, kind of fall to the wayside and then you're left with just a few nuggets of, you know, hobbies that you really, really like. And those might be different from your husband's or your partner's. Um, so finding that thing that you can do together, even if it's watching a show that you love to do, you know, together, um, or doing a physical activity that you like to do together, those kinds of things I think are really important. And you get close to someone when you experience things together. So when you either have an emotional experience or physical experience, that's how you create closeness with anyone. So constantly creating closeness with your partner in that way is, I think, really important. I love that. Normalize it and know that working on it is not, doesn't mean that there's <clears throat> something terribly wrong. It is. No. It requires work. It takes work. Connection, relationships take work. Yes, they do. It's the one that suffers the most, I think, um, especially in early motherhood when kids are young and everything's a little bit chaotic and exciting. <laughs> Yes. We love that tip. Thank you. Gosh, um, it's been such a pleasure, Kayla. Thank you. Can't wait to have you back on. And um, <clears throat> yeah, I guess I'm just sort of ruminating on all the wonderful things you <laughs> shared. Um, for those of you who don't know Kayla, please check her out on Instagram at the Family Food Project for amazing plant-based recipes and just an abundant, abundant array of delicious food where you would never know certain ingredients like gluten or dairy are missing. Um, it is really an inspiring story that you can go from a health crisis to abundance and vitality in a beautiful way. So I hope you've enjoyed the conversation as much as I have, and I can't wait to see you on the next episode of Mom Light. Take care, guys, and thank you, Kayla, for being here. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it.